You are listening to Rankin Vile, a proud member of the Greenlit Podcast Network. Hey guys, welcome to Rank and Vile, the podcast where we are ranking every single horror movie ever made. And on this episode, we are joined uh, by uh, tabletop RPG and wrestling writer Michael Francis. Good morning. Uh, yeah, good morning. Good afternoon from uh, the distant future of Friday morning. Yeah, that's that's kind of the thing, isn't it? Like uh, when when we're doing across the world sort of stuff, part of my brain doesn't want to accept that if you're in Australia and I'm and I'm in the United States doing this, like we're we're punch we're punching through the veil of time somehow in a way that's going to mm. come back on us. Mm, definitely, I am definitely your ghost of twenty twenty future, and I can tell you, it does not get any better. I guess I guess I shouldn't be surprised. Um, Michael, this uh, this being uh, your first time on the show, a thing we like to ask people when uh, they're on for the first time: What is your background with horror? Are you are you a lifelong horror fan? Did you come to it later? What what was your experience with that like? Uh, I was a bit of a uh, I guess a late adopter uh, by virtue of being the eldest of three brothers. Uh, often there was a rule. When we went to the, you know, the VHS village back in the day, uh, and we only ever hired a VCR during holidays, which dates me terribly, it had to be something that all three of us could watch. So there's a 10-year age gap between myself and my youngest brother. So that meant that, uh, you know, when I was in that that prime ghoul era of the, uh, you know, the early teens, I had a uh, kindergarten, elementary school age brother that I had to be uh, beholden to when it came to media. And so... Consequently, I was terrified of horror movies. Like e- e- even the thought, like there was, I can distinctly remember in sixth grade, there was mm. on a random weekday night a triple Nightmare on the Street and Marathon, where they were showing. Now we're talking three, four, and five back to back to back on some random ass Wednesday night, uh, and even even seeing like the the bumpers and trails for that scared the heebie jeebies out. So uh, there was a comic book store I used to frequent uh, where they had like a side hustle where you could hire someone to come to your party dressed as either Michael Myers, Jason, or Leatherface. And they had a massive poster for this on the back of the door to that shop. And I would physically step around it to avoid looking at that poster. Man, I, I, it's, it's kind of beautiful. Like, do you kind of miss being able to be like spooked by a poster? Like to be that, like the world is that fresh and that impactful for you that you're like, if I look at that poster for too long, I will actually probably start. Mm, Definitely. And um, yeah, uh, you know, I I miss feeling things. Uh, I miss having genuine human emotions. Uh, Those were some fun times. Yeah, in 2020, in this economy, we can't we can't afford to have them. Um, so what uh what ghoul shit um, either this week or in the the, the recent past have you have you been up to in quarantine? Are you or how how what's the quarantine situation like where you are in Australia? Uh, so in my particular uh city in Australia, we are on a bit of a, a winning streak. We are I think three weeks zero cases, but. Hey. Uh, compared to some of the other bigger cities on the East Coast, uh, where they are in 
stage four, stage five lockdown, uh, curfews. You need to get a permit to leave the house. So it's a very uh, uneven situation across uh, across Australia, but my particular patch is is not too bad. So um, I have been filling my hours diving headlong into the world of Christian black metal. Very good. All right, wait, have you listened to Extol yet? Uh, I think so. I went through a bit of a, a uh, YouTube hole yesterday where I found a testor ceremonial incantation i think that was either the name oh, of the shit. band or the album one it was either the album or the band was either ceremonial incantation and the only war we have is with hell and i can't remember which one was the album <laughs> title and which one was the band name see that's kind of incredible because like one of the progenitors of black metal being venom the fact that they had an album called at war with satan and which a is so funny called in league with satan Oh, I thought it was at war with Satan. No, it was both. They, they, they did one, one, then the other. At war with Satan is the, uh, is the, I think the second album after Black Metal, and then the follow-up album is in league with Satan. So they're giving you both sides of of a, of a very divisive issue, which is the mm. battle with Satan. Definitely, and and the battle with spiked gauntlets and uh, and pole arms. God bless. Honestly, if you're, um, wait, why am I forgetting the name of the guy from? Uh, Even uh, Kronos from Venom. Yeah, Kronos. Yeah, like that. I feel like that guy and Blackie Lawless from Wasp were out here with the best gauntlets of 1985. Mm. Mm. Oh yeah, and Halford. You, you know the, the, that whole uh, oh, metal yeah. gimp aesthetic. That is, he is the the undisputed, undefeated, forever champion on that throne. Bless Robert yeah, Halford and his kitten loving socks. Yeah, and also only one of those three rock stars is totally aware. Like, yeah, I knew it was a gay thing. You guys, you mean you guys wouldn't know? And they're like, well, no, we just thought that's cool. Oh, it's just, so true. It's so true. Oh my god, it's yeah, it's perfect. Honestly, um, Christian black metal, like, I there's still a band that I listen to sometimes uh, on my workout playlist called Extol, mm. which is. It feels sort of against the, the, the nature of things to have a, a Norwegian black metal band that's also a Christian black metal band because mm, you're sort mm. of like, your entire deal is supposed to be like scowling at churches and occasionally committing arson and- Unholy like, pagan darkness. Yeah. And, and then, you know, meanwhile, these guys are like, do you want to, do you want to accompany me to Bible study? And it's like, I don't know, like, it, it sort of, it makes you wonder what stuff they're actually up to if that's their, their front mm. organization for this. Mm. Definitely. Like there's a big band in uh, in Australia here in that scene, uh, Mortification. They've been in that sort of Christian extreme oh, metal yeah. scene for, jeez, thir- thir- 25, 30 years. Um, and I can remember seeing yeah. like a grainy VHS bootleg of, of a Mortification show where they had the classic, uh, you know, extreme metal band. So they had the big amps, the big guitars, the huge drums, mm. the massive banner with the, the blood red Mortification logo. And then in between the drum riser and the singer was this seven foot cross. So like, just, just in case you needed us to be any less <laughs> subtle. Yeah. Yeah. Like we're, we're worried that there might be some doubt as to what our whole deal is. Honestly, exactly. my, my thing with like extreme uh, Christian metal is always like, I always feel like they missed a trick because, you know, you've got like Christian black and death metal and it's all songs about how, you know, like you're going to be redeemed and Christ loves you and all this stuff. And I'm sort of like, if you're a Christian metal band, you've got the entire Old Testament to write metal songs about. <laughs> like, why wouldn't you do songs about killing an army with the jawbone of a donkey? Like, mm. you've got... All that smoking, All that raining yeah, fire. Or, 
or, or calling down a, a group of bears to massacre the local children for making fun of one of the prophets for being bald. Like, there's so much shit you could write metal songs about. Just, uh, uh, this is where our background differs. I quit Sunday school to watch Transformers at the age of eight. Uh, <laughs> you were right to do it. That's the uh, thing. You got in on the ground floor. You got in while the getting was good. I was a hmm. schmuck for holding on. <laughs> Um, but so speaking of speaking of schmucks, um, actually not speaking of schmucks at all. Let's dive into our uh, the first movie we're doing this week, uh, which is the highly contentious uh, Alien sequel, Alien Three, mm. which is the first film directed by David Fincher. Mm. Mm. Um, this, a, a tr- I, I think, uh, this is one of the ones that are held up as sort of like a troubled production. Mm, definitely. Uh, have you seen much of the? I guess the commentary and the the back matter um, around, you know, the legendary difficulties behind this movie. There was a bunch of stuff on, you know, the trilogy and the quadrilogy DVD release where they, where it was, it wasn't quite um, Alan Smithied like, uh, like David Lynch's June, but (laughs) you know, there was, there's that, what's it called? There's like an alternate print of alien three in one of the box sets. Uh, oh, uh, the assembly cut. That's the one. And, and it's assembled entirely without the involvement, consent, or probably knowledge of David Fincher, apart from cashing a paycheck. Which I think David Fincher is probably perfectly happy to do. Like, if anything, mm. he wanted to Alan Smithy himself after making Alien 3. <laughs> um, and apparently the, the entire experience almost put him off of filmmaking entirely because mm. it was such a goddamn nightmare experience to direct mm. this movie. Mm. I do wonder, though, that there's two legendary other takes on this movie, and I often wonder uh, if we got the best one. So there is the the, the legendary uh, William Gibson Army on a Space Station version, uh, which you know, floated around the internet for for many, many years. Uh, it was adapted by Dark Horse Comics late last year, early this year, I think. Uh, yeah, and, and and this, of course, being the version where uh, Hicks uh, survives instead of Ripley, as played mm. by Michael Bean, and he mm. sort of, you know, the, the further adventures adventures of Corporal Hicks. Mm, exactly. And then there is the, uh, the Vincent Ward version. Do you know anything about that? The Vincent Ward version, I don't know from. What's What, what was the deal with that one? So Vincent Ward uh, is a New Zealand filmmaker. He made a very weird fantasy time travel movie in the late 80s called The Navigator about a bunch of... Uh, Black Plague era pilgrims that dig a tunnel through the earth to try and find a cure for the plague and they wake up in the 1980s. So they travel through time. So um, he was, uh, you know, a a rising auteur in Hollywood at the time. Uh, And he was commissioned to write uh, what, and he's still the credited writer of Alien 3. So there is four or five writers, I think. There is story by Vincent Ward and screenplay by a bunch of other schmoes. And, and the idea of the Vincent Ward version is that what is go it was going to be a wooden planet that was a floating monastery in space. So Alien Three is a real ship of Theseus. Uh, yeah, experiment. Yeah. Where like who? It's impossible to say like which part of this was part of anybody's. You know, which, which honestly for me, I, I I sort of love movies like that because it's almost like you've run uh, all these different creators and writers through a blender and created a slurry uh, through which you can't spot anybody's individual contributions. And it just becomes this giant glob of a thing. Definitely. I mean, and there's, you know, the stories that, that um, the cast and the crew were turning up on the day without a script that, you know, there, there was allegedly several million dollars spent before they'd shot even a, an inch of film. You know, they'd spent all this money at Pinewood building these sets for this Vincent Ward version of this film, which then had to get hastily 
uh, you know, panel beaten into the the locations that we see in the movie, which still I think have that very uh, monastic feel to the design. Uh, lots of big, empty cathedral-like spaces. Lots of oh, weird definitely. things with candles. Um, uh, and yeah, so you had. Uh, I, th- I think there's a story that th- that Sigourney Weaver's first day on set was the autopsy scene. Mm-hmm. So the scene where she's on the... Um, that's, you know no. what? That's incredible because it's like, well, we're off to the races. You know what? Yeah. First day on set, we're, we're performing an autopsy on a child. That's yep. what's up. Yeah, definitely. And, and apologies that that's jumping a, a little bit away in, in ahead of the events of the movie. But um, I don't know. I feel like it actually starts pretty strong. What do you think? You know, honestly, and, and I don't mean to uh, uh, sort of, you know, have a hot take. I really, really like Alien 3, and I'll tell you why. Um, I appreciate that uh, after Alien, one of the best straight-up horror movies of all time, and Aliens, one of the best action movies of all time, I appreciate that they that Alien 3 doesn't try to out-Alien or out-Aliens either of those movies and just goes all right, what if we went with a kind of gothic horror, kind of quiet meditation on redemption and trauma and all of these things like this? It's it's unrelentingly bleak in its tone and in a lot of, you know, everything that happens in this movie. But mm. I appreciate so much that it's doing something different. And I also appreciate um, the, the, the brass it takes to open the movie by going, Hey, you remember uh, Corporal Hicks, the love interest, and uh, Newt, the adorable Moppet? Fucking dead! And they're, mm-hmm. they die in the spacecraft before it lands on Fury 3. Like, at the outset of the movie, Ripley is isolated immediately on mm. a hostile planet full of violent Definitely. convicts. Definitely. It does. Uh, any sense of um, normality is completely ripped away. Uh, any sense of, you know, whatever uh triumph she attains at the end of aliens in terms of you know getting that that found family that she's she's been missing by by the fact that her family back on earth you know has 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 died and she's outlived them um it's just gone you know it's just no that's it 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 is a metaphorical and literal crash landing into hell absolutely and the fact that you know because in you you have it exactly right like with the found family thing you have a husband in Hicks, you have a daughter in New... You even have, like, a wacky uncle character in Bishop, uh, the android, uh, as mm. played by the immortal Lance Henriksen. Um, and so at the outset of the movie, um, it starts out... Uh, which, by the way, uh, as a side note here, one of the worst trailers, I think, for Alien 3 was the one that uh, it started with, like, a slow pan over planet Earth. And the tagline on it, uh, in opposition to In Space, No One Can Hear You Scream, is on Earth, everyone can hear you scream. Which, like, what the fuck, guys? It doesn't even make sense. How did you arrive? Was there, like, Aliens, the, the theme park ride? That, that All of your friends can hear you scream and you can get a photo of... Yeah, no, honestly, um, the one of the initial treatments of this was, like, what if the Xenomorph landed on Earth, etc. And, it, you know, they, mm. they, they sort of, they had no idea what they were doing. So... The, the conceit of Alien 3 is that uh, Ripley has landed on a planet called Fury 3 that mostly looks like Fargo, North Dakota, where it's just this fucking <laughs> desolate hellscape. Um, and you've got sort of these uh, monastic criminals. Michael, could you give us could you give us a, uh, a description of, of these gentlemen? 
Uh, I mean, well, as performers, it is a murderer's row of British character actors. You know, you've got, uh, apart from Charles Dance, uh, you know, he's, oh, yeah. he's the other import in the cast, but you've got Paul McGann, uh, who's amazing. Um, his part gets reduced due to creative differences. Uh, you know, Ralph Brown, Pete Postlewaite, there is an absolute just uh, great assemblage, which makes this a very adds a certain British stiff upper lipness to many of the characters in the film, but oh, they definitely. are essentially a, a bunch of reformed prisoners that are by their own confession, the absolute dregs of humanity. They are murderers, rapists, child abusers yeah. who have essentially been left at the arse end of space by the company to die on a disused um, foundry waste recycling plant because no one cares about. Them. Yeah, and of course, by the company you mean Wayland Yutani, which you know they they have to have their goddamn hands in everything in this series. I think, mm. um, which I'm kind of okay with because I feel like um, even Resurrection. I feel like one of the huge themes of a the Alien series, and this might just be me being a dirty uh, anarcho socialist. I feel like a big theme of the of the the film series is like unchecked greed, you know, greedy capitalist uh, uh, lust for power is mm. what causes all of this shit to happen. Mm, um, definitely, and as I, an alien, you've got you know the expendability of the Nostromo, the whole thing, and mm, yeah, Alien mm. Three is like this is the mil this is the prison industrial complex. Mm, definitely, definitely, and there is that just inherent uh, male colonialism that, that pervades through those movies. There, you know, there, there is, oh, yeah. especially the, uh, the the jailers uh, in, in this movie are the symbols of the patriarchy in this movie and its incompetence and its rigidity and its inability to adapt to um, things that deviate from the way things are supposed to be. Absolutely. Now, and, and now here's the thing though. I, Charles Dance in this movie, uh, I, um, so his character, um, he plays, so uh, Ripley Crashlands on the, on the planet and, you know, all of the prisoners are like, hey, all of your friends are fish food. They, they died on impact. And uh, Ripley, is, sort of looking at the wreckage, sees that um, Newt probably would have been um, attacked by a facehugger and she doesn't know, she she becomes made aware that there was something on the uh, the escape pod, which you know she correctly guesses was a fucking facehugger, and so she becomes very very insistent. And it's amazing the you can tell like how traumatized she's become after the last two movies. All of this has taken place in a matter of like what a couple of months for Ripley mm, in like, her relative time. Yeah, yeah, from Alien to Alien Three, and so she goes very quickly from Oh no, my surrogate daughter is dead to we got to cut my surrogate daughter open to figure out if there's anything hinky going on in there. It, it, that is a scene that could have been handled a lot poorly than it was in the hands of um, another director, that autopsy scene would not have been as uh, traumatic and as um, emotional as it is where you've got that, that grief and that distress and that anxiety. It would just have been, you know, uh, a, Hannibal-esque tableau of someone you know gutted like a fish. Yeah, well, and especially um, so Charles De Charles Estance, uh, who is a great fucking actor. He's one of those actors that he's a he's a real now we're talking actor. Where when he pops up in something, my ears perk up. Um, mm. And Dance plays a character called Clemens, who is a disgraced doctor um, who is stationed at Fury Three. Um, I'm just gonna uh, acknowledge this. I ship the 
fuck out of Clemens and Ripley because <laughs> and it's incredible because like they both they're both horribly traumatized. Now he he's the one who performs the autopsy because you know Ripley's like hey you know uh, she's sick she might have been sick so you got to cut her up and then he basically tells her like okay so because I'm not a total fucking idiot or do you want to tell me what's going on and they're both so traumatized and both trying to keep their secrets to themselves but they both so they they fuck uh, and the the way that Ripley sort of intros is it is like I've been out in space for a long time and you know we're both really lonely we both are pretty into each other like they've got a really really cool rapport and I just I love any relationship in, in, in a thing like this where they both are trying to experience any kind of vulnerability but they've got the they've got that fucking armor up because of mm. the horrible things they've been through and they're both trying to figure out what the other one's deal is I don't know just their their chemistry and you know what it is it's the twinkly fucking eyes of Charles Dance. Like that he could have good chemistry with a chair. He he's definitely uh a a, a he's that I think uh, that that Britishness of of trying to maintain uh his air of respectability even though he knows that he literally has blood on his hands. He feels horrible on the inside but he he, he he's punishing himself. He he has in his character story, he, he has chosen to stay there. When his sentence was up, he could have left, but he feels he hasn't um, paid his debt, and so he hangs around. So he is punishing himself, and then he has the opportunity to have an actual, well, healthy is too strong a word, but to have a, a, a relationship uh, with Ripley that's not <laughs> uh, that's not purely um, you know toxic and masculine, yeah. uh, and, and then. You know, they, they tick that horror movie box that after they go down to Bone Town, well, of course he has to die. And and um, I don't quite get right. why that happens. And, 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 and in pretty splattery fashion, which is another thing that I sort of love that like, so by this point, uh, Ripley, having lost all of her um, support networks at the beginning of the film, she's in, you know, a hostile environment. She's looking for terra firma. She's trying to find something to hold on to. And she meets a kindred spirit who seems to re really respect her and really listen to her, what she has to say. And she, you know, he wants to help. And then immediately uh, killed by the Xenomorph, just immediately mm. killed, which just sort of, mm. all right, well, you had a friend on the planet of the violent, uh, aggressive convicts, and now you don't. So you're kind of on your lonesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. And all of these, and all these prisoners figure out that there is, capital S, something on Fury 3 that turns out to be, and this is where we find out, by the way, that canonically um, a xenomorph, or excuse me, the facehugger can implant an egg and create a xenomorph uh, on a being the size of a dog. Mm. Mm. Uh, yeah, and that's um, uh, I think there was an earlier version of the script where it might have been a cow maybe, but yeah, you know just to show how truly despicable this thing is, I, I believe I believe it was an ox in, uh, in the thing, in which I would love to see the xenomorph ox. Like that's <laughs> what a xenomorph possum. Like and and apparently canonically anything as sm uh, 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 as large as a cat. So if it gets smaller than a cat, you couldn't have like a, a xenomorph. Yeah, the gestation couldn't occur. Yeah, yeah, and there there are so many like alien tie-in properties, like video games and shit, where it's like, all right, and here's a possum xenomorph, and here's a honey badger xenomorph, and it's it's just the greatest. I I love it. I love that stupid shit. Um, <laughs> but so Ripley gets sort of acquainted with them. Paul McGann, who's he's like fresh off of With No and I, right? Mm, yes, as is Ralph Brown. They are 
rising stars on the, I guess, the, the British movie scene. Um, and yeah, Paul McGann, uh, criminally underused in this film. Um, yeah, there, there are, I believe, other scenes he was supposed to have in this plot line where he thinks he's on some sort of uh, Arthurian quest and the alien is, is the dragon that he needs to defeat. Uh, and then it just disappears. Like there's, there's the sequence where they try to imp imprison the alien in the uh, toxic waste containment unit um, in the facility. And McGann's character was supposed to actually let the creature out again after it had been successfully captured. Uh, and that's just not there at all. So you're saying that Paul McGann in this movie is basically pulling uh, Robin Williams' character in The Fisher King, where he's just like <laughs> on this fucking Quixote quest to, to do the thing. Yes. He, he's so good in this movie, though. Like for the little, for the, the small amount of stuff that he's able to do in this movie, he is acting for the goddamn cheap seats. Mm, mm, he is, yeah, he's all there with the, you know, the, 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 um, the, the crazy eyes, that that high pitched voice, um, contrasted against his sort of, you know, quiet, disturbed, uh, but reassuring voice. There's that scene in the infirmary when he comes in, just gore splattered and straight jacketed and screaming like a maniac. Uh, and See, then, and, well, and, and this for me is I um, have you have you listened to any of the the big Finnish audio dramas with him as the Eighth Doctor? No, I haven't. No. This was my this was my first like frame of reference for Paul McGann, and so it was goddamn. It was so weird to hear the Eighth Doctor just like screaming about how we're all gonna die. It's <laughs> like you know what? It's it's he's having a he's going through a thing. It's fine. Mm, yes, that is definitely a conversation for another time about how it is criminal that we never got more than uh, what we did of Paul McGann as the Doctor. For sure. Hey folks, it's Asif Khan, CEO and editor in chief over at ShackNews.com. Give a listen to our 9 to 5 Elon podcast about Tesla and electric vehicles and all sorts of cool stuff over there on the Greenlit Podcast Network. But yeah, so uh, what, H.R. Giger, um, he actually, he designed what, the Dragon Alien? He did, yes. So this is his last official involvement with the series. He does the designs for the the Dogburster and the Dragon Alien, which has that much more um, on all fours, you know, quadrupedal uh, movement. Uh, and then, yeah, th things went south, as did many things in the Alien franchise. Um, Giga's, in Giga's involvement is one of the things that, when they uh, went back to the uh, the bad ideas cupboard for Alien Resurrection, um, mm -hmm. they couldn't or didn't or couldn't afford to bring uh, Hans Rudi Giga back to, um, to to do anything else. Which is a fucking tragedy because apparently H.R. Uh, Giger is like the nicest, sweetest dude in the world. Mm. Like he's mm. just giggly and enthusiastic and happy to be doing anything. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, to bring it back to the extreme metal thing for a moment. Did you know that Tom Warrior from Celtic Frost is the official H.R. Giger archivist? No shit. Tom Warrior? Mm. He, he was close friends with Giger in the later years of his life. Uh, and obviously there's the very famous Celtic Frost album covers and... Um, oh, of course. That use that art, and then some of uh, his, I guess, solo work with his other bands also uses that. And yeah, you know, music is is not his full time hustle. Um, he is, you know, a, a closet art nerd, as I'm sure many metal folks are. Uh, and, and he is involved in foundation or the museum or, or whatever the whatever that enterprise is that keeps Giga's legacy going. Now that Giga and his wife have both uh, passed away, um, yeah. 
good old Tommy G uh, is there making sure that uh, the kids got to know about their biomechanical style. Yeah, yeah, he's fucking out here doing it. And also, I and you know, this being again, you pointed out like uh, in uh, before we were talking about the show that like this is in that weird area uh, between practical effects and CG. Um, a lot of the alien effects in this are they look like stop motion when you've got the the dog alien, where it's sort of jerky and kind of like trying to approximate. A, a... Yeah, like we haven't even got to uh, Star Wars twentieth anniversary levels of CGI yet. We this is this would have been made in you know nineteen ninety one, nineteen ninety two, released in either late ninety two or early ninety three. So we are still years removed from shitty CGI jabber. Uh, in in what. <laughs> Which is so begs the question, like, like why? Um, I think it's really, it's really to the detriment, especially of the third act. Well, and what's what's so that's kind of the thing is like as the movie goes on, we there's uh, an attempted uh, rape scene uh, in in the movie uh. that like gets so these being um, sort of you know violent violent convicts who are you know up to all manner of horrible thing. Like the the idea is like oh no, they've been out at this outpost trying to deny their, mm. their terrible you know impulses and, and stuff, and then. Oh, you know, this is the first, you know, Ripley is the first woman any of them have seen in probably like a decade or whatever. And so um, the head, the head guy kicks the shit out of one of the the dudes who attempts, you know, this on Ripley. Mm. And, you know, Ripley gets the moment of like kicking him in the face or whatever. But it's also like, did I did, did we need that in our alien movie? Like, no, did, no it's kind we... of implied that there's that line earlier on where one of the prisoners says, I have taken a vow of celibacy that also includes women. Uh, and and and, and, uh, and that's in the scene when Ripley first walks into the the mess hall. Everyone's like, "Oh, cripes! There's a woman here. Oh man, I've got you know all all, all the horny, yeah. and I don't know what to do." And when one of them makes that statement, so it, it's there in the subtext. You don't need that scene to know exactly. And also, when when Ripley walks into the the cafeteria, you know she's got her head shaven, her huge balls swinging. She just sits down at the table and eats her food, and she's like, "The fuck are you looking at?" Like she, by mm. this point, she has already seen worse things than these dudes. Like she, mm. this is this is not this week. These are not the scariest people she's seen. Um, and so you know as the movie goes on like they they all become sort of you know oh no there's like something on the station Uh, a bunch of dudes get like pureed by this fucking thing and what um what they figure out is that they need to like hunt it down and so they've got the you know the the flamethrowers and everything and uh as the movie progresses uh whalen yutani starts becoming more of an entity that figures out like because apparently their eyes are fucking everywhere and they're like, oh, it sounds like it's pretty xenomorphy over at Fury mm. 3. We should send a guy. Mm. How would you describe the violence in this movie? Like, because uh, it's pretty, it's pretty gory. Uh, I think from the scene where the xenomorph erupts from the dog, uh, it, it, it tells you how things are going to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of it is is more, I guess, uh, stylized and arty, like you were saying before, when, when Clemens... Uh, bites it, you know. There, there's a, 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 a almost a um, subliminal scene of his head exploding as the uh, the alien, you know, bites through his head. But otherwise, it's all you know, gouts of blood rushing over plastic sheeting and stuff. Um, yeah, I, I think, um, like you were saying before, there's that trajectory of sequels where you know every sequel in theory should go bigger, 
more over the top, more stupid than the one before. So you can see how the temptation would have been there just to make this an absolute list, to make this just a, um, you know, comedically cyberpunky movie. And, and, you know, Fincher, to his credit, tries to inject some sense of style and um, creativity to to the deaths and and the, the gore in the movie. Yeah, well, and, and it's part of, for me, the overall, like, vibe of the thing of just, like, you know, Ripley is made to suffer, this, you know, every everything happening at the station is so brutal and so, you know, sort of, everyone is uh, having having a rough time. Um, you, you figure out uh, throughout the course of the movie that uh, Ripley was um, implanted with uh, the xenomorph egg uh, via facehugger probably while she was, you know, in transit in the, in the escape pod. Um, and you realize this when the xenomorph in, you know, what that meme we've all seen 8,000 times, uh, <laughs> the xenomorph rolls up and goes like, Hey, what's good. And, and puts its face next to hers and figures out like, Oh, you, you're, you're one of me now because you've got the egg inside of you. So I'm mm, just going to fucking, mm. I'm going to leave you alone. Um, and the idea being that like, you know, the xenomorph it's, it's dedicated to the propagation of its species and so mm. it physically like it can't it can't just kill her because it's trying to keep itself alive which doesn't necessarily carry over into the next movie by the way because there's a bit in um alien resurrection that it's that's kind of amazing where there are a bunch of xenomorphs in a holding uh pen that's meant to contain them and two of the xenomorphs decide you know what our buddy here is full of uh acidic he's like mm. an acidic capri sun if we just mm. shred our friend's body we can <laughs> we can melt through this floor and get the fuck out of here so they are not terrifically mm. committed to the continuation of that particular guy's life um well maybe if you want to you know so, no yeah, prizes it's, it's the fact that in alien 3 the alien knows somehow that the alien inside ripley is a queen whereas the ones in resurrection maybe you know well we're drones we're expendable uh and Whereas the the queen is essential to the uh, propagation of the xenomorphs, he says, as he adjusts his glasses academically. Right, which yeah, which also makes this um, alien. Uh, so Ripley implanted with an alien queen. Since Fox got bought by Disney, this makes uh, two Disney princesses in one body. <laughs> I believe, which is just proof of Ripley's divinity. So so where's the roller coaster? Like, <laughs> <laughs> where's the uh, yeah? Where's no? the fucking roller coaster? Honestly, Star Wars world, Avengers world. Where's my goddamn Ripley world? <laughs> Honestly, I feel like Alien Three: The Ride should just be everybody sits in the car. <laughs> it doesn't go anywhere, but you get really hot water dumped on you, and people yell at you. And that's well, the and you got to shake your head the fuck out, and then you. The price price of admission is, is a shaved head, and uh... <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. You, it's yeah. There's a there's a process for this. Um, but so mm. it goes on. Uh, eventually the, um, so Wayland yutani uh, well, no, actually I'm, I'm getting a, a little bit ahead of myself here. Um, the CGI, it, it becomes more CGI as the movie goes on and it, the Z, it, it looks bad folks that this, this xenomorph, um, it, it looks, it looks mm. pretty rough. It is on the level with Poochie leaving to go back to his home planet. That, that is how obviously not there the alien is. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a lot. Just like floating in front of the screen, it, it sort of looks like a Ray Harryhausen like stop motion animation, where it's just completely unreal and taking place in another universe than the one we're watching. Um, mm. But honestly, it's kind of it's weird. It's kind of a nice moment that uh, while Ripley is working with these convicts, um, 
All of whom, honestly, I'm not going to lie, I love this as a setting because I love the idea of like a planet full of convicts who are all like dedicated to being better people and uh, sort of staying, you know, keeping their nose clean and staying on the straight and narrow. You've got, mm. you know, a scene with R- Ripley's working with them and she's like, yeah, I know you guys are full of horrible impulses or whatever. I'm the only one of you sons of bitches who has successfully encountered the Xenomorph twice. Um, you guys need to fucking pay attention to me when I tell you stuff about the Xenomorph. And they kind of all go like, you know what? She knows what she's talking about. None of us do. So she mm. sort of becomes their the, you know, de facto leader. The body count has to hit that critical mass where, you know, it's like, well, I think it's that scene in the... Um, I don't know, in the common area, I guess, where the uh, administrator for the prison gets ripped up into the ceiling duct by the Xenomorph. That's where they're like, oh, okay, we got a problem. This isn't just a bunch of guys uh, falling through fans because they're dicked too hard and there's no blood in their brain. This is, there is genuinely something here and it wants to kill us all. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, it's just, and, and to the point that they can't even, you know, sort of be like, ah, oh, I need to think about the penance I have to do. Like, no, guys, it's it's all asses and elbows right now. We've really got to figure mm. out this alien situation. Mm. Um, and actually, and there's, 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 kind of a, there's kind of a nice moment uh, in the third act of the movie where um, the, the dude who um, attempted to, who, who assaulted Ripley, um, he's like working alongside her and they've got like a kind of grudging, like, yeah, we both know what you tried to do, but we got to get mm. through the situation. And so it's just the two of them yeah. sort of working shoulder to shoulder to get the alien uh, murderized by uh, <laughs> what this is. This is set up earlier on in the movie, by the way, uh, the the molten lead. Mm. Yeah, there, there is there's a couple of uh, reasonably well foreshadowed bits. There is the molten lead which they use as a uh, crematorium for the bodies of um, Hicks and Newt. And then there is the, uh, the the deadly bucket of foreshadowing where they see a bucket get so, so hot uh, with molten lead. And then they douse it with sprinklers and it cracks and explodes. Uh, and and that, if, if there was a Chekhov's bucket, that is it. <laughs> yeah, it, it could not be more obvious and more sort of like, all right, well, I'm go- I guess I'm going to put a fucking pin in that one. That's going to come back around. Um, mm. And mm. so they 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 successfully successfully dispatch the alien, and uh, he you know and and it's 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 pretty dope. The the alien's body just sort of, um, god damn how it is it is a it is a wild death for a xenomorph because you kind of wonder how the fuck do you kill a thing like a xenomorph? And this movie goes like, what if we just fucking explode it Jaws style? Mm. It is, it is, I was going to say Time Cop is my point of reference, but I mean Jaws is, is arguably the better movie. <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. You're correct. It is. It, it is just, more just time cop than Jaws. To time cop the shit out of this thing, but it explodes into big, big family bite-sized chunks. Yep. And they, you know, so they figure it out. And so you would think that everything is uh, cool in the gang, but suddenly, oh, oh no! Listen, I'm getting ahead of myself. I think one of my favorite, favorite, favorite scenes in this movie that we haven't talked about is that uh, Bishop the robot who uh, got sort of just fucked to hell by the the mm. crash landing, and his head is detached from his body. Um, Ripley locates what's left of Bishop and he switches back to life. The first thing he says to Ripley, who has shaved her head, is, Oh, I like your new haircut, which <laughs> just breaks your goddamn heart. And, and, and as a prosthetic, like that, that like, is that is a fine piece of effects. Like that, as a, a um, compared to um, Ian Holmes' head poking through a table in, in Alien, 
this is um, <laughs> doused in milk. <laughs> exactly, d- d- doused in, in in miscellaneous white viscous fluids. Uh, yeah, this <laughs> as a as a as a bishop muppet. Um, yeah, and and the the nihilism of of the cold android logic of bishop. It's like, well, you're fucked. I don't care what you say. You're fucked, and while you're at it, kill me because I can't live like this. Why are you doing well, this to yourself? Why are you doing this to me? Well, and and this is kind of the thing is that I well, and I feel like there, yeah, and I feel like there's a parallel for me between um, Bishop uh, in this scene, basically saying like, "Look, I'll never be top of the line again, and if I can't be the the version of myself that I that I need to be and want to be, I am fucking uninterested in continuing my existence. I need you to switch me off." And mm. later on, so in the third act of the film, when Ripley, so Wayland Yutani, uh, they send some representatives uh, to, to try to sweet talk Ripley again, which by the way, by this point, Ripley is sending all of their emails over to the spam folder. Like she's not fucking interested in talking to Wayland Yutani. Um, there is they, big do not want energy. They, they send, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, they send, um, a guy that looks exactly like Bishop uh, because they figured like, well, she probably wants to see a familiar face. Um, and what's the, what's the sales pitch that he, he gives Ripley? Uh, so, I mean, he, he tries to, to give her the sweet nothings of, you know, well, why would we do this? We only, we only, we only want the best for you. Uh, and then, you know, Ripley is holding her ground saying, no, 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 no. This ain't my first rodeo here. You're fucking with me. I know you want this thing. And it's not until it becomes apparently clear that Ripley is not getting off Flat Planet alive that Bishop just pleads with her after his head has been caved in with a crowbar. Uh, he says, like, think of all we could learn from it or something like that. <laughs> like, he, he just, that heel turn is bang, like that. He's like, no, nope, fuck it. The mask is coming off. Uh, <laughs> just, just give it to her. And, and, and if you're lucky, yeah. you'll survive. Yeah, it's it's incredible. And yeah, and she's like, you know, she knows ultimately that like, all right, you you needle dick pencil pushing motherfuckers at Wayland Yutani have been trying <laughs> to avail yourselves of a xenomorph for as long as I have been a character in this mm. franchise. Mm. No fucking <laughs> dice. And she she yeah. takes a calculated uh, she 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 makes the call to um, just kind of do the Fosbury flop down into the molten lava because, or not lava, the molten lead, because she's like, it's, there's a couple of scenes where she has that big uh, Jesus Christ pose where, you know, she, she's doing the, uh, doing the martyr arms. Um, and, you know, it, it's, yeah, I think that imagery is clumsy, but I think it's intentional. Do you yeah. agree? Oh, I think it's fucking, I think it's fucking fantastic. Right. Yeah. She, she, she does the Scott step from Creed arms, uh, jumping backwards <laughs> in the lava and it rules. Scott step with a shaved head at this colony. Like, yeah, I thought I would work through my dark impulses. Um, and, yeah. and you know, you've got, you've got, a, a not Bishop, the, the, the Wayland Yutani guy sort of going, no, because she has decided to deprive them of a xenomorph, uh, which is the thing that they want, ultimately. Um, they're, uh, in the original cut of this movie, which which I think was garbage, and I'm glad they changed it, um, as she is diving down into the, into the molten lead, the xenomorph pops out of her chest as she is making her descent. Um, 
which is just garbage. Like just because that's that's the version I watched uh, on you know on on streaming the other day, and that's the way I always remember it. That she's got this very maternal hug as she's carrying her baby down into a fiery death with her. Is that is that not in the the current cut of the movie? Oh, I've seen. Wait, did I? I'm I've seen so many different versions. I, I feel like the one that I watched uh, this this morning was the assembly cut. So I might have gotten the version where it didn't pop out as she was like diving down. Um, I think I kind of like the version where it doesn't pull a jack on the box and pop out of her chest while she's on her way down, because I don't like the idea of like, you know, the xenomorph is, you know, the aliens have been trying to kill Ripley this whole time and they finally got her, you know, and I just, I love the idea of like, Mm. we don't need to know. Like, we don't need to see the xenomorph mm. popping out of her to know that she's carrying it and that she's choosing to deprive Will and Yutani of it. Mm. Yeah, definitely. It's it, it's done. Uh, like, as you say, it, it adds nothing, although it does in some way foreshadow the weird uh, mother-child relationship in Resurrection, but that's clearly not intentional. Oh, there, yeah. Uh, you know, there, there was no way that when they wrapped this movie, they went, you know what? Fucking space clones and Jean-Pierre Genet... And Winona Ryder, and uh... which that's kind of that's a stay tuned for sure. Like I, I, I kind of love Alien Resurrection. Like it's a goddamn it's a goddamn mess. But I feel like there's so many individual things about that movie that I am crazy about. Like it, it does not work as a whole, mm. I don't think. But um, it's like it's like what Roger Ebert once I, uh, said about I forget which film, but it was uh, I can I can say nothing to recommend this film except that I enjoyed every minute of it. So looking at the list uh Mm. so i i think i'm trying to i think for me i'm trying to balance how much i like this movie with how actually good it is and i feel like it might just be that i'm a nasty little canker sore and i like mean movies like alien 3 how many other like third part in a series movies because i've sort of you know i've looked at obviously alien and aliens uh top 50 pretty bulletproof where they deserve to be and i'm looking at the list trying to find other third part in a franchise movies to be the uh, measuring stick for Alien 3. Well, there we go. Let's see. Um, all right. So uh, for third installment in a franchise being certainly the weakest of the of the three, um, at number 254, uh, we have Return of the Living Dead 3. Um, the one with like, what if my girlfriend was a zombie who got super into self-mutilation? Um, I want to give it, I, I want to give it a big, uh, advantage over Return of the Living Dead 3. It has been a long time since I have seen that movie. Uh, uh, so the recency bias alone would push Alien 3, uh, above that and, and probably a few other movies around this, this neighborhood on the list as well. Yeah. Now, all right. So, um, looking up the, the, the list a little bit, I think, okay. All right. So at number 216, we have, uh, other franchise, uh, I, this franchise has been alive longer than it probably should be at entry Freddy versus Jason at 216. I feel like this is a better movie than Freddy versus Jason. Um, <laughs> at least, at least because it's saying anything about anything. <laughs> Freddy vs. Jason is definitely firmly in the so bad it's good category, whereas Alien 3 is in the, mm, is this good actually category? And, and I feel that that, that gives it a, a slight edge. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think so too. Um, all right. Okay. All right. Okay. Here we go. 
at number 204, we have The Toxic Avenger, which is a, uh, not exactly classic B-movie, but it's it's when you think of, you know, what it represents with trauma and with sort of, you know, garbage mm. uh, uh, movies that have stood the test of time. That's one of those movies, like, th- I think this movie and Alien 3 both uh, have cult appeal. I can't even believe I'm going to say this. I think for what it is trying... So if we're going with the Roger Ebert thing, I don't know why I keep name-checking Roger Ebert tonight. I guess I want to marry Roger Ebert. Um, he, so, you know, the, what is a movie trying to do and, and how well does it accomplish that? I feel like I want to give the edge to Toxie for having more clarity of purpose than Alien 3 and executing oh. the thing it is trying to do better. I think Toxie certainly has uh, like a visceral... Like DIY punk rock energy, whereas Alien Three is definitely a movie by committee. You, you could definitely see the the boardroom and the execs, uh, you know, with the cocaine and the cigars and the, the overpriced early '90s sushi, <laughs> trying to work out how to maximize the return on this movie. Whereas, yeah, it is it is Toxic Avenger just grabs you by your ears and shakes your head and screams at you. This is exploitation! <laughs> Feel bad! And just, yeah. You know what, though? I uh, I hate to draw parallels. Uh, both the Toxic Avenger and Alien 3, super cool with child death. Uh, we've got one kid getting his head run over by a car. We've got Newt dying on impact. Um, and actually, right underneath the Toxic Avenger, we have another movie that features child death with an uh, interview with the vampire from 1994. Um and, and another Michael, 90s hot mess too. Oh, oh my God. Yeah, that got that. Antonio, I, honestly, the thing I always think about from Interview with the Vampire is Antonio Banderas's wig uh, in that movie. <laughs> it, it's as Armand, like it's, it is, it is a lot. Mm. So I honestly, Michael, how would you feel if I said to you, I think that Alien 3 is a better movie than Interview with the Vampire, but not as good as The Toxic Avenger? Yes. Yep. I, I think 14 year old me will, will fly that flag because uh, I didn't see Toxic Avenger until a few years after that. Um, oh, but nice. if you take the nostalgia away, Toxic is definitely a, a purer distillation of an idea. Yeah, it, it does. The, it, it does something horrifying and awful and it does that relatively well. So, mm. Mm. yeah. So I feel pretty good about that. So yeah, so coming in at our new number 205 is uh, David Fincher's uh, Alien 3. Hi, I'm Ray, and this is my friend Alex. Hi. And we do a show called No More Whoppers. Some call it corn, we call it therapy. We're adults with the virility of men. Want to hear us read snack food copy and talk about Japanese chips? Too bad! Join us every month or so on the Greenlight Podcast Network. Um, mm. All right, so goddamn, let's... All right, so the second movie we're doing uh, is... Uh, holy shit we're gonna switch gears a little bit and talk about another horror movie which is blue velvet by david lynch from 1986 yeah uh i had not seen this movie (laughs) maybe this century i wonder like it's certainly been at least 10 years maybe more man so what was it like for you going back uh coming back to this movie as a man in in the year of our lord i arn anderson 2020 uh, trying to keep a family together in, you know, whatever is happening right now. Just the mm-hmm. 
the trauma of the nightmarish suburban hellscape of blue velvet just it ate at my soul ryan like i i felt i, I felt as a oh not a failure as a person but there was definitely big feels that there is a, i think there was a reading of this movie in 2020 about the toxicity of nostalgia there is there is a reading of this movie about the fact that you know there is that that lynchian duality of rockwellian america uh of you know the surface versus the undercurrents the nice versus the nasty uh and to have lived through this decade and lived through this obsession of why can't we have the good old times back that spoke to me in this movie in a way that it didn't speak to me when i was watching this as a 20 something it couldn't have spoken to me watching this uh you know 15 years ago it is perhaps more powerful and relevant now than it was even in the height of Reagan's America when it came out. Yeah. Well, and yeah, that's exactly it is like, honestly, this makes me think of the fact that, um, so my dad, uh, you know, he, he grew up in Crawford County, Illinois, which was, you know, a, a town of like maybe a few dozen people. Uh, my, my grandfather was a, a soybean farmer, you know, and, and, the way that my dad describes his, you know, childhood growing up in Crawford County is sort of that Norman Rockwell countryside, you know, like my dad built a, a, a lake house for us and we would, you know, and it was all these like sort of, you know, mm. homespun rustic stories. And then my dad, you know, came back to Crawford mm. County. He, he lives there now. Um, he moved away forever and, you know, sort of lived in a bunch of places. He came back and then realized like, oh yeah, my neighbor was a child molester and my other neighbor was like hawking pills out the back of his car. Like, Mm. you you realize those things that you kind of you kind of can't totally go home again once you know mm. what is underneath everything and especially with Reagan's America mm. The, mm. I mean this movie opens with literal fucking just pick white picket fences and nice lawns and the you know the sun is shining mm. and mm -hmm. then in the midst of that I it's I think about this shot every goddamn day of my life where the camera sort of moves down and underneath mm. the nice manicured lawns, there are bugs crawling and, and just these that red and yellow ants. Like Lynch does not get enough credit as how he uses white noise and acoustics to fuck with your head. And, and that shot is the perfect example. I've never seen this movie in a cinema, but I imagine if you did just that, onslaught on your brain of that dissonant noise and the sound of those insects devouring each other you, you must be so cognitively de destabling oh yeah just to be instantly thrown into lynch's mindscape the, the maelstrom of the mind of david lynch is there in the first five minutes of the movie Yep. And it's, it's incredible. Like also uh, Lynch's use of sort of ambient noise. This was like, uh, this was him taking all of the, uh, all of the noise stuff he did in like eraser head and make sort of using it in sort mm. of pop context with blue velvet that it's like more mm. accessible. It's not, you know, actively mm. trying to fuck with you as a viewer, but it's like, it's again, like the ants right underneath everything and you kind of can't mm. totally mm. escape it. Um, yep, and there's so lots of industrial is, uh, noise in the so background. Oh yeah, yeah, especially because this is a, a lumber town. Um, 
sort of as a way to uh, th- this is in a lot of ways um, sort of the the soft open for Twin Peaks. Hmm. Yes, definitely. Yes, this is the uh, the establishment of of what would become Lynch's trademarks. I think uh, you've got the you know the, the experimental student art films of uh, the short movies like uh, the grandmother and the alphabet and uh, six men being sick uh, and all his, you know, experimental films when he was uh, at the American film Institute. And you've got, you know, the, the, the waking never ending nightmare of a razor head. You've obviously got um, the elephant man and June. And then this is where the, the thesis of Lynch's career is, is outlined in this movie Uh, in how it leads into Everything he does from here on out. Well, yeah, and especially because all of, so all of the trademarks being there being like what, uh, sort of uh, crime. Like David Lynch loves crime so much because I think for him this is where you find the bugs underneath the lawn, um, mm. because of sort of people who are either um, falling prey to their own terrible fucking impulses or due mm. to like hunger or need like he is so comfortable on the the fringes of society and the human experience where like you know in a, in a town like isn't the town's name lumberton by the way yes yes it is yes and well and, and so the, the 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 plot of the movie in in rough strokes obviously is that uh jeffrey beaumont played by a baby kyle mclaughlin he is a tiny <laughs> larval mclaughlin and i just want to, i just want to pinch mm. his cheeks he is your boy mm. scout what about the now. earring though the earring is i could not stop staring at it it was like winking at me I know. the entirety of this movie <laughs> that, mm. that fucking earring it was so hard not to stare at the entire time <laughs> um and he you know and and so he's come back to um, his hometown and um, his father um, had took took a took a dive because he found um, what he had a what a heart attack on the lawn because he found a severed ear. Uh, I, my reading of it is his dad is allergic to bees and he gets stung by a bee and he has an anaphylaxis reaction because when you see him in hospital he has ah. a he has a, a a breathing tube that would imply they had to give him a tracheotomy because his throat had swollen shut so. I rewatched the scene last night two or three times trying to see if that was um, explicit in the text, but that's always my reading of that scene. Man, that makes sense. Like, I, because I, my, my thing was like, I don't know if he just got super spooked by a severed ear, you know? Like, and, and so Kyle, mm. uh, excuse me, Jeffrey Beaumont, I, I will call him by his Christian name. Jeffrey Beaumont um, discovers the severed ear in the lawn. And as one tends to, when they find a severed ear uh, on on a lawn, <laughs> he has some questions, uh, and he, you know, this this sends him on a quest to figure out what whose ear was this, what happened, um, and the thing that he uncovers is that uh, there is the worst man who has ever lived, whose name is Frank Booth, uh, played by uh, Dennis Hopper, rip in peace who um frank booth apparently dennis hopper apparently dennis hopper wanted to play this character so much because he was like i am frank booth like okay Mm, dennis hopper mm. great could you stand like 10 feet over that way maybe Mm. i I need to work through some shit i'm trying to you know get off the cocaine and the smack and whatever like i I need this movie (laughs) to help me exercise my demon yeah 
and he now th- th- which by the way and i have to point this out um because i i was losing my shit i so i watched uh blue velvet on a uh creative uh a creatively acquired uh streaming uh uh mm-hmm. service um to watch it so it was, you know sort of like a lot of uh you know ads popping up and sort of it, it looks like a cyberpunk nightmare where you're gonna get a fucking disease mm-hmm. clicking on one of them um, and there was a thing that popped up uh, over over the screen that said, uh, "Hi, I'm Juliet. Wanna fuck?" And it was over uh, <laughs> Frank Booth's face uh, on the thumbnail. And I was like, "All right, Juliet. I know this is Frank Booth. Like local singles. Wanna fuck?" You making David Lynch cry? You, you um, are like like so- somewhere in in that little workshop. Oh, David okay. Lynch knows you did that, and he's angry at you, Ryan. Well, he knows I did that, and he knows that I watched it on my little iPad while I was uh, working today. And I just always think of that video of him talking about like pe- people watching movies on their fucking iPhones, and they will think they have seen the movie. And it's just like I'm sorry, Ooh. David. I, I'm I'm on the go, man. I gotta I gotta watch movies. I gotta work. Mm, I gotta find ears in in the yard, and then talk in in the way that regular humans do to regular humans about the fact that i found an ear in my yard you know that's the great thing about finding a severed ear in your yard it makes you slow down you know you really have to (laughs) stop the hectic pace of your life and stay in you know the spirit of curiosity about this severed ear Mm, this is a boy's own detective adventure gone wrong like jeffrey's story is a hardy boys slash you know encyclopedia brown all-american boy Solves mystery in a small town. Oh in my god! Yeah, a nightmarish Lynchian hellscape. Yeah, this is like the heart. Yeah, this is like uh, this is like if Goofus and Gallant was like Goofus accidentally becomes a voyeur h- hanging out in a closet. <laughs> like it's <laughs> it's so much. Uh, and and mm. honestly, I love so, I, I, so much of this movie. Sort of comes down to a kind of voyeurism i feel like where it's sort of like you know and and that's this is also the thing with true crime i think right is that we all kind of want to look at stuff we're not supposed to be looking at when it comes to like mm. violence mm. and the unseen and stuff we really should know better than to chase down um mm. and kyle mclaughlin in this movie especially uh he now, all right, so we, which, by the way, side note here, we uh, we, we should pr- uh, uh, probably, I, I'm so sorry if I, I go at a bit of a faster clip. I want to make sure that we're sort of uh, getting getting everything in. Um, mm-hmm. Dennis Hopper, Dennis Hopper is Frank Booth, has the most threatening energy of any character in any movie. Mm. Mm. Definitely. He is everything that is toxic about um, uh, male behavior personified. Yeah. Yeah, where he and it's on top of that, it's he's all of those things. And there's this like petulant baby energy behind it, which is just sort of makes him more loathsome. Mm, um, big time. He's kind of a karaoke enthusiast, isn't he? Like he he likes a, <laughs> he likes a nice song. He likes a nice sing along with his good friend, Ben Dean Stockwell. Again, j- jumping ahead a little bit to, to possibly my favorite scene in the movie. But yeah. Oh please, please, please! Uh, so the the Dean Stockwell, what's what's his character's name? Ben, the, the the mononymous, no last name given, probably pimp Ben. Oh yeah, yeah, and he what? He's is he he he's the one who sings uh, in dreams, I think. He does the Orbison, yeah. He does the uh, the candy colored clown where he's singing into the bunker light, 
uh, as it lights his face up quite menacingly, uh, karaokeing along to, um, yeah, to that Roy Orbison song. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of sort of Americana music that runs through the thing that's basically, and I feel like uh, David Lynch is a big fan of what if horrifying things happened while nice music was playing in the background? Mm, mm. Oh, definitely. You definitely don't get um, uh, the ear senior Reservoir Dogs without Blue Velvet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, apparently, so the thing that... Uh, now, when, when you talk about Blue Velvet, I feel like everybody wants to talk about the scene in Blue Velvet where it's a, a, a horrifying uh, sexual assault scene with Frank and Isabella Rossellini's character. Um and he is using, apparently, so he's got a face mask that he puts over his face and huffs throughout the movie. And it's meant to be amyl nitrate, which is meant to heighten sexual experiences. Uh, apparently, initially, David Lynch really wanted this to be helium. And he wanted Frank Booth to have a big, like, Judge Doom sort of, like, squeaky <sighs> voice while doing it. imagine, but is that part of that, that, uh, childlike petulance. Like there's definitely big eatable energy in Frank's character and the way he has this, you know, twisted sexual relationship with Jeffrey and, and with Dorothy to a degree. Is it part of the fact that oh, yeah. Lynch is trying to say that, you know, he he's, he, he's emotionally crippled and stunted as a child in the body of a belligerent drug fueled, you know, rage clouded man. Yeah, yeah. He he is a sort of idiot pubescent uh, rage uh, couched in the body of a grown man with a drug problem. And he mm. now uh, a lot of stuff happens. Laura Dern, which by the way, we need to talk about how great Laura Dern is in this movie. <laughs> um, uh, she she and Kyle MacLachlan together. First of all, America's sweethearts. Uh, I would watch oh, them yeah. in anything. Hmm. Mm. Yes, there is a great. Uh, you talked about like, like the temptation of the forbidden, uh, and Jeffrey has like the, the anchor on either side. He has um, Sandy played by Laura Dern on one side, and then he has Dorothy played by Isabella Rossellini on the other side, as he tries to reconcile like how much of this disease do I want to expose myself to, and and they both do amazing performances as actors as the two poles of Jeffrey's personality. Absolutely. And especially because, you know, with Dorothy, it's, you know, Laura, uh, Dorothy, because of her own trauma and because of, you know, her relationship with Frank, she wants Jeffrey to sort of be aggressive sexually and like smack her around and be violent and hit her. And Jeff, this kind of freaks Jeffrey's shit out because he's like, I don't want to do that. Like, that's not who, mm. that's not how I want to be. But at one point when they're fucking, he does, he just kind of does that. And it's this thing of like, oh, you could turn into Frank if you wanted to. Mm, mm, like Definitely. It's a real Twin Peaks, the return um, evil, evil coop versus regular coop thing where it's just like you, you could become that if you, if you let yourself. And then on the other end of it, oh, you've definitely. got Sandy who like, she's just the most wholesome person who's ever lived. Mm, she, she's trying to. Uh, protect her uh, virtue is not the right word, but she's trying to, you know, maintain the purity of herself and defend Jeffrey, um, despite Jeffrey's worst intentions. She, she's she's the one, I think, the only character in the movie that is competent and consistently well intentioned. Yeah, like he, 
and so as the movie progresses, eventually uh, he and and you know, guys, if you if you haven't seen Blue Velvet, um, I I want to recommend it, but it's also like <laughs> it is it is a hard watch. Like this is it's you can't you can't really just throw on Blue Velvet on like a a, a Thursday afternoon when you're puttering. Like you really you're gonna want to set some time aside. Mm, mm. It 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 it's a, a vortex of a movie. Yeah, and in terms of like emotional, I, I don't know. I as like insane yops of emotion and raw fucking just power. This movie will make you feel things. Many of them will be uncomfortable, weird things, and that's great. Like this movie, mm. it. I think one of the things that David Lynch does so well is that he takes these very sort of standard like crime stories or you know sort of narratives, and he manages to hit these notes that it's about how it makes you feel and what it brings up in your subconscious more than anything mm. else. Like, mm. I, I remember mm. one time. Um, I watched, um, my, my friend William had never seen uh, Twin Peaks before. And so I was like, hey, do you want to like, you know, we could watch the Twin Peaks pilot and see what you think. Um, and William is an actor. And he, um, about 10 minutes through the, the the thing, he was getting this like increasingly consternated expression while we were watching it. And, you know, I didn't want to poke him, but I was kind of like, hey, you okay? And then he just yells, why are they talking like that? <laughs> um, and like, David David Lynch dialogue, like so much of his work, you know, you're sort of like, it's weird and disjointed, but the emotion it conveys, I kind of, I can't think of anybody like David Lynch and I can't think of anything like the things he makes. Mm. It, it, it's the combination of the things that are said and also the things that aren't said. The fact that there is um, so much... <sighs> so much lacking in, in, in what the characters say and, and the way they say it. And Sandy's dad is a perfect example of this. Like he is, there's a point where he says something along the lines of, you know, being a policeman is, is the best job and the worst job in the world that um, he's yeah. sort of pointing it's, to Jeffrey's future and saying, well, you go one way and you end up like me or you go the other way and you end up like Frank, you're at a crossroads here now, son. This is going to be, a reckoning for you. This is going to be the crucible through which, in my view, you will grow up to become a special agent Dale Cooper. <laughs> yeah, this is definitely uh, Dale Cooper's backstory, which also scans with like, if you think of uh, Dale Cooper's uh, relationship with Audrey Horn and him, you know, being, a, you know, aside from a decent human being and not like predating on, uh, you know, she, like, on, on a young mm. girl where there's a weird power dynamic, his... His, you mm. know, the bit in Twin Peaks where he's like, you know, Audrey, you need a friend right now. This is wrong and we both know it. I can't be this person for you. I think there's a through line between his relationship with Dorothy and his relationship with Audrey. Like maybe, mm. you know, he, he learns from his relationship with somebody who's damaged in a way he can't personally fix, but he can be there for her as a resource. And then there's mm. Audrey Horn. Mm. And that desire to understand the mysteries of the world to protect other people from them. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Also just being willing to sort of look underneath everything for the bugs mm. and also mm. like a spirit of curiosity about things. Mm. Just like There's a great line in, in, in this movie where they're in the car. I think it's after the first time that they have been, sorry, that Jeffrey has been in Dorothy's apartment and Sandy looks at him and says, I don't know if you're a detective or a pervert. And Jeffrey 
<laughs> smirks back to her with boyish innocence, but that naughtiness in his eyes and says, well, that's for me to know and you to find out. And, and, and that is yeah, that, yeah, that, that moral crossroads that he is at. Yeah, that's ex- I am I am at the intersection of detective and pervert, and I don't know which way I'm going to be turning. So mm. yeah, stay tuned, sort of thing. Mm. Like, yeah, you and me both. Well, I don't know which one of those I am right now, but I look mm. forward to finding out. Uh, the music. We have to talk about the fact that this is the first time that Lynch and Angelo Badalamenti work together. This is the first time that David Lynch and Julie Cruz work together. This is uh, the beginning of you know that great relationship, and and, and part of that that proto twin peaks that you talked about earlier man honestly julie cruz and angela badalamenti are so like present in this movie um this by the way uh this is the year before angelo badalamenti turned in the the insane synth score for um nightmare on elm street three dream warriors Mm. um badalamenti's comp like his his score for this movie is perfect it is a Mm. it's so good like it's it manages to be like emotional and sweeping and sort of full of danger and full of queasiness without being sentimental. Mm. It is both um, intimate and personal and existential at the same time. Yeah. And you can, I feel like this was one of those movies that you could tell how fucking dope Twin Peaks was eventually going to be (laughs) for a collaboration between David Lynch and, Angela Badalamenti like it's and also Julie Cruz like there's I I yeah god damn this is this this movie mm. and it's also I love knowing that David Lynch would never take credit by himself for this movie succeeding like he is so much about collaboration and about the process of working with people mm. to make something mm. Mm. the the creative process the happy accidents the I don't know where this comes from. I don't know where this is going. We are all on this ship sailing through the nightmare lands of dream together. Uh, and we will get to the other side. Th- th- that is the journey, both behind the camera and yeah. with you as the audience. It's yeah, man. I love David Lynch. All right. So, all right. So looking at the list right now, <laughs> um, at number 26, we have uh, David Lynch's eraser head. Wow. It's that high. I think I, yeah, yeah. I mean, Quincy, Quincy and I are, are really high on Eraserhead. Like, we love that movie. Um, I, I, I think Blue Velvet is a better movie than Eraserhead. Not because of like, and Eraserhead is perfect at the thing that it does. I think, but Blue Velvet, yeah. it's more confident. I think from David Lynch. I think he has a yep. stronger idea of what mm. he's trying to say and how he's trying to accomplish it in a way that on Eraserhead there was some shakiness there that like, you know, and it resulted in some really great stuff, but I think blue velvet is sort of more mm. sure of itself. What do you mm. think? Mm. And I, I think blue velvet is the more, uh, if accessibility is important, like if you said, okay, we're going to um, introduce someone to David Lynch and his work, blue velvet and twin peaks are the, the two things that you can show them where they wouldn't instantly run screaming. Like if you're not ready for it, a razor head will change you, and and you know that is cerebrally a hard film to watch uh, because it's so um, disjointed in its narrative. Whereas Blue Velvet, there is a mystery, and the mystery is investigated, and and there is a resolution, which a lot of David Lynch things. A razor head has a a more conventional story structure that that um, other Lynch things don't have. 
Um, and I think um, that clarity of vision and the fact that it is, like I said, it is that the the cornerstone of Lynch's career is this movie. Definitely. Like this is, yeah, this is where it all, this is where it all comes together. I now mm. above. So above a racer head, I think I, 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 I think I have a, a stand to make and I think I can defend it. I think so at number 23, we have mm. the Blair Witch Project, um, which to me is another movie about what's underneath everything where there's the, I think the line from the Blair Witch Project that I always think about is one of the characters exasperatedly saying, it's hard to get lost in America these days, which is sort of, you know, and it's a reliance upon like, look there, you know, we've colonized the whole fucking colony. We've got roadside, we've got McDonald's, you know, like we've got, Mm. uh, you know, I've got a, I've got a handy cam right now. We, you know, we've, we've conquered the whole continent uh, and we should be able to find our way back and it's realizing that you're out of your depth when you go mm. digging a little too far beneath where you were supposed to be. Yeah. If Blue Witch is about being uh, geographically lost in America, Blue Velvet is about being lost in the American psyche. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like, it's it's a, a sort of... they both pe- People in both narratives are rudderless in a way that's like... Mm. Um, and in the Blue Witch Project, they're trying to hold on to things like maps and... You know, if we just head this way or like look at the sun a certain way, we can find our way back. And you've got sort of Kyle McLaughlin using uh, Sandy and Dorothy as two opposing points on that compass and trying to find his way back to himself. Um, mm. Man, man, I love Blue Velvet. But so between <laughs> those two, I think I want to, I, I think I want to give the edge to the Blair Witch Project at least for being such a fucking. Um, juggernaut in the found footage genre like Blair Witch is what you think of when you think of found footage and I think that for what it did and for what it established um in terms of convention both for uh horror movies in general and found footage I think I want to give the edge to the Blair Witch Project over Blue Velvet what do you think um peek behind the curtain uh I, I personally don't have a lot of time for the Blair Witch Project, but that's fine. Um, we, we can agree to disagree on that. Oh, oh um, no, no. Fasc- wait, I'm, I'm fascinated. All right, so wait. So so uh, between Blue Velvet and Blair Witch Project, why would you uh, why would you give the edge to, to Blue Velvet? So for me, uh, I went into Blair Witch, Blair Witch Project as a, as a younger man uh, with that you can't scare me chip on my shoulder. There is no way this is the scariest movie of all time. And so I went in. Oh, yeah. And I dug my heels in and consequently I did not engage with that movie and it did nothing for me. Uh, and um, nice. it wasn't really until it was on this podcast or a couple of others that I thought, well, you know, maybe I was wrong. Maybe my opinions as a 20 something man who was confident that he knew everything about everything. Maybe I was wrong back then. So, so maybe if I went back and watched it again, it would scare the heebie-jeebies out of me. But um. Yeah, I, I certainly see the importance of Blair Witch as a movie and the way it redefined horror films in a way that, that Blue Velvet mm-hmm. is not have the legacy uh, that Blair Witch does. All right, in that case, um, at number 19, we have Aliens uh, by James Cameron. Now, here we go. Which is a better movie, Aliens or Blue Velvet? <laughs> Okay, so Friday Night Test, I will watch Aliens. Yep. 
Friday yeah. night test, I will not watch Blue Orbit. <laughs> it's not it's not really like a it's not a party horror movie, you know? Like you don't just throw no, on Blue Velvet with no. the boys when you're all Blue Blue Velvet is not the I've had a horrible week, I need to unwind movie. <laughs> Blue, Blue Velvet is maybe I could be more full of existential stress. <laughs> Maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm not as confused about this word as I could be. Let's help with that. So, yeah. Based on that, uh, yeah. It's, I'm, listen, I'm just fr- Friday night. I'm just trying to relax and vibe to the dulcet tones of uh, Bobby Vinton. You know, I'm just I'm <laughs> trying to uh, soak in the ambiance and just really, you know, really take a load off. Um, I feel like, yeah, so right, be- right Below Aliens is uh, Raw from 2016, which is a movie I love very, very much, but I want to give the edge to Blue Velvet at least because, like, the the movie Raw, for me, succeeds entirely because of um, the main actor in, in Raw, and, like, it's a great movie and, and well-written and, and everything else, but she's the most uh, memorable performance in the thing, where with Blue Velvet, I don't... I walk out of this movie, like... Isabella Rossellini is a revelation. Mm. Uh, Dennis Hopper fucking kills it. Obviously, Kyle MacLachlan and Laura Stern. Like, it's 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 a movie that is full of so many different great performances that the sum total of it, I feel mm. like, is a little bit above Raw. Yep. I'll, 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 uh, I will agree with you on that. There is definitely, uh, you know, the weird bit parts from Dean Stockwell to Jack Nance and, and Brad DeReef. There are so many oh, weird man. little niche performances in Blue Velvet that make it more memorable. Yeah, and also Brad Dourif's haircut in this movie. I think I actually had that haircut at, at one point in my 20s. Um, so yeah, so I feel pretty good about that. So coming in at our new number 20, uh, above Raw and below Aliens is Blue Velvet by David Lynch. Um, Michael, what do you have anything that you would like to plug at this time that you've got coming up? I do. So I have a, a Kickstarter on at the moment for a glam metal monster hunter, my micro role playing game of Vince Neil versus Dracula and uh, Bon Jovi versus Frankenstein. Uh, it's on Kickstarter right now until 26th of this month. You can just put a glam metal monster hunter into the Google bot, or you can find me on most of the socials as at TPK zine. So that's at TPK Z I N E. I'm I'm so fucking excited for Glam Metal Monster Hunter. Like it's it's going to be everything I like about both metal horror and tabletop games. It is a match made on match made in heaven or a match made in hell. I haven't quite worked out which one yet. Yeah, it's it's sort of yeah a match. It's it's either Sandy or Dorothy, and and we won't know until we won't know until the end. Um, folks, you can find uh, Rankin Vile on all manner of platforms. We are on Twitter at Rankin Vile Cast. We are on Instagram at Just Rankin Vile. Uh, we have a Patreon, we have a Discord channel, we have um, all, all manner of stuff for you guys. Uh, we have a Patreon, uh, if you uh, give us like five bucks, we, we give you all kinds of bonus content. Um, but yeah, that is, uh, that is about all I've got. Later, folks.